I would ask you now to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke, something I haven't said for three months. If you are new to the church, just coming this summer, you didn't know this, but we've actually been studying the Gospel of Luke. We just took the summer off and we have been engaged in a, in a very great, wonderful study of Luke. We have left off here actually in chapter 17 uh, at verse 11. And uh, I'm just going to read the passage that we will be studying here this morning. Luke 17, beginning at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face, fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Father, now I pray that we would see this text in all of its glory, that we would understand the heart of it, that it would challenge us and bless us and encourage us and allow us to to be able to, from the depths of our hearts, sing these songs of thankfulness. Thank you, God, for this time. May it change us forever. In Christ's name, amen. Well, like I said, we're finally back in our study of Luke. And what I thought I would do, because it's been three months since we've been in, in Luke, it would be good for us just to take a moment and review what this gospel is about and, and, and where we're at in its flow so that it would make sense to you. And I kind of feel the best way to, to kind of get into the flow in the heart of Luke is for me to ask you just a question, a question that some of you might react to in a negative way. The question is this, what does Jesus mean to you? Now, the reason why some of you might react in negative ways is that you might have been taught that's the wrong question. The, real, the right question is what does, who is Jesus, not what does he mean to me, who is Jesus, whether or not I were dead or alive. And that's the right question if we were trying to define Jesus. But the question I want to ask you is, what does Jesus mean to your life? Like, what role does he play in your existence? Like, the fullness of Christ, what role does it play? Some people, they, they hold to Jesus as their Savior, and they think only in terms of heaven and hell, and Jesus is their Savior, and that's a great thing, but that's all they see Jesus as, as their Savior. Some people see him as a judge, and so they're scared to death of him. They're afraid he's going to, you know, always kick him out of hell or kick him out of heaven and send him to hell at any point. Some, some people see Jesus as the Lord, the one we are to follow. Some people see him as a friend, somebody they can talk to. But one thing I have found with all of us, myself included, is that probably our picture of Jesus and our understanding of Jesus and what he means to us is incomplete, I don't know if we go through life processing the fullness of who Jesus is and that we engage every moment with a full understanding of who Christ is and what he means to your life. And it's easy to engage this world with missing the fullness of Christ. 
Well, see, the Gospel of Luke is about painting that picture of Jesus. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, and he's saying, I want you to know who Jesus is. I don't want you walking around with an incomplete picture. I don't want you just grabbing one little piece and trying to anchor your whole existence on just this little piece of Jesus. I want you to know who he is in his fullness. And so Luke begins to unfold great truths about Jesus. In fact, he shows us five things. He shows us first that Jesus is God. He's the incarnated one. He's the one that has come from heaven to earth. He is the anointed one of God. And so when we think of Jesus, he's not just a man. He's not just a good man. He's God. And Luke unpacks that for us. He shows us that as God, he's also the Savior. He's the one we run to for life. He's the one we run to for hope and for meaning and for purpose. And for every quest of life, it should be Christ to fulfill. And then he says, Jesus, not only God and not only our Savior, but he inaugurated the kingdom. He brought the kingdom of God. He ushered in all these Old Testament promises that this kingdom was going to come. He inaugurated, he brought it, he started it, and started bringing the power of the kingdom of God to earth. And then Luke begins to show us that Jesus will suffer. That this conquering of the kingdom is going to come through death. But also he shows us that to belong to Jesus means that you live on mission. That your life is actually centered around his purposes for the world and his purposes for creating you. So this is the big picture that Luke is painting for, the king, for, for Jesus and who Jesus is. Now just a little bit of how he does it. This is just a structural thing. I'm doing this so we can find our place in, in this passage. But notice here, uh, the structure of it is pretty simple. In chapter 1 through chapter, halfway through chapter 4, we have the arrival of Jesus, the incarnation. And then starting in the midpoint of chapter 4 all the way to the end of chapter 9, we have the ministry of Jesus. And he begins to unfold all of these things about him being God and inaugurating the kingdom and all that's going on up in Galilee. And then in 951, Jesus begins to make his way down to Jerusalem. And all the way through 1927, we have the reaction to who Jesus is. He's walking through, and people now have, have heard him preach. They've seen his power. Miracles are happening, and we're having different reactions to who Jesus is all the way through. And then in chapter 24, we have the resurrection. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 19 through chapter 1928 through chapter 23. Ooh, I confused myself there. Um, we have the death of Jesus, where he conquered everything. And then chapter 24 is the resurrection. So that's just the, the flow of it. So here's where we are. You can see we're in that section on the reactions to Jesus. And so everything that's going on at this point, Jesus is doing something or saying something or being asked a question, and there is a reaction that's, that's being highlighted. And the focal point of the passage is the reaction. And that reaction is supposed to teach us how we, how, what a proper response is to Jesus. And today, we have this with the healing of these ten lepers. These ten lepers get healed, and there are, there's two different reactions. One reaction is a reaction of humility. The other reaction is a reaction of hubris. If you don't know what that means, I'll define it later for you. But these are the two reactions. And so Jesus displays his grace, he displays his mercy, and then there's a reaction of humility and hubris. And, and, and I want you to see today two things. There's two things I want you to get as we go through this. The first thing I want you to get is a challenge. Here's the challenge for you. This passage, 
will challenge whether or not you live life with a self-focus or a Christ-focus. It's going to challenge that in you. And so I hope you get challenged. I hope it makes you slightly uncomfortable. But then the second thing that I want you to get from this today is a blessing. A challenge and a blessing. And the blessing that I want you to get from this is I want you to see how deep the mercy of God is. Because when Christ challenges our hearts, he doesn't challenge our heart to punish us. He challenges our heart so that we would see him and his glory and we'd stand in his grace and his mercy and we'd worship him forever. Because he loves us. He died for us. He's our friend. He's not our enemy. So I want you to see the challenge and the blessing today. So let's look here at the grace and the mercy first. Just the, the way the text, I've broken it up. Our first point. Look at verse 11 with me. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now all of these little geographical statements are important. And so, so we've got to kind of get ourselves on a map here. And the map I want you to use, I'm going to teach you, we've done this before, but I want you to use your thumb as a map of Israel. Israel's like your thumb, just this long, narrow thing. Galilee is like your thumbnail. That's the region up north. Below your knuckle, men, where your hair is, a little hairy spot below your knuckle, um, that's Judea. And inside Judea is Jerusalem. Your knuckle is Samaria. Okay? It's Samaria. Now, Jesus has been ministering up in your thumbnail. He's making his way down, should I say to the hairy spot? He's making his way down to that spot down there. But he's got to pass through your knuckle to get there. So here's what he's saying. We'll put it in the thumb paraphrase. On his way to below your knuckle, Jesus comes up to your knuckle. Okay, you got it? I want to teach you that. So whenever you're reading and you get like location statements in the Bible, you can just pull out your thumb and you can use your thumb and let that be your guide and it's easier. Okay? Low-tech way. Okay? Now, why is this important? Why is all this important? Well, first of all, he's making his way to Jerusalem. He knows when he gets there, something's going to happen. He's going to be killed. He's on his way to the cross. This is the way the kingdom was going to be inaugurated. This is the way Satan was going to be defeated. This is the way sin and death were going to be resolved. All of this is going to happen. He's on his way there. The disciples are, are hesitant and resistant about this. They're going to try to stop him from going. But Jesus is going. He's on his way down there. Now, he has to pass through Samaria. Now, he hasn't gotten there yet. He's between your thumbnail and your knuckle. He's in the middle there. That's where he is. But he's approaching Samaria. When you read that, that he's approaching Samaria, if you wanted to kind of get into the emotion of it, you would read it and you'd say, oh, on his way to Jerusalem, he's passing along between Samaria ugh, and Galilee. You'd have a little ugh there when you thought of Samaria, if you were a Jewish person reading this at that point. Why? Well, just a little bit more background history, just review for some of you already know this. The Assyrian Empire... Um, went and, and took over the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel was divided into two kingdoms at one point. You remember this? And uh, the northern kingdom was your knuckle all the way up to the top of your thumb. The southern kingdom was below. Northern kingdom, knuckle up, was called Israel. Southern kingdom was called Judah. Good. All right, called Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom was Syria, uh, Samaria. That was your knuckle spot. Okay? Now the Assyrians come in, and they wipe out... Israel, the top part of your thumb. They wipe it out, and they 
take about 27, 28,000 Jews and spread them all over the place. Because that's how the Assyrians conquered. They would take you out of your land, make you live in another country to demotivate you from ever trying to rise up resistance against them. So now, what's left, though, in Samaria is a handful, a few thousand Jews. At the same time, when the, when the Assyrians were kicking the, the, the Israelites out of the northern kingdom, they were also making people from other countries, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, come into that area. And what happens? Young people fall in love, and they get married, and all of a sudden you've got Jews and Gentiles getting married. And now, for 70-plus years, you have this intermarrying going on. And these guys that are coming in from other countries and women are coming in from other countries, they have their idols and their gods, and suddenly the northern kingdom is just laced with idols and gods and, and all kinds of random things. Then Babylonians come in, they conquer everything. Then the Persians come in and conquer the Babylonians. Sorry, here's history stuff. Well, when the Persians come in, they have a different strategy. They say, we're letting everybody go back home. That's our strategy. We want to keep them happy. So we're going to send them back to their homeland. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back. Right? And they're going to rebuild the wall. Remember this? They come back to rebuild the wall. And what happens? A bunch of um, people, uh, Samaritans, come up, these half-breeds, and they come and say, can we help you build the wall? And what do they say? No. We are not letting you build the wall. Can't do it. You are defiled. You're half-Jewish. You're half-Gentile. You're worshiping pagan gods. There is no way we're letting you build the wall. or no way we're letting you build the temple. No. And at that moment was formed the Samaritans, these half-breeds. And they said, you know what we're going to do then? We're going to do our own thing. We're going to establish a, our own worship center in Mount Gerizim. And we're going to take, take the first five books of the Old Testament. We're going to create our own laws. We're going to do our own thing. And so right smack dab in the middle of the country was this little, what the Jews would have called, rebellious group of Samaritan pagans worshiping on their own mountain, worshiping their own version of Judaism, doing this thing, and they were just disgusting in their sight. So disgusting that when Jews wanted to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee, they would go all the way around your knuckle, which is a really complex journey, adding miles to their journey. They would never pass through. These guys were just defiled. Now Jesus, he doesn't hate, I mean, he, he doesn't say there's a whole sect of people off limits from salvation, right? He's come to bring salvation to everyone. So the first person he reveals himself to outside of his disciples is who? A Samaritan woman at a well who lives a really bad life. And the hero of his story is the good Samaritan, right? All of these Samaritan things come out, and Jesus is making a point. God's blessing these people. God's saving these people. They're not as wretched as, you know what? You all have sinned. There's no difference between you and the Samaritans, but they thought there was. So now, it's all the background to the story. Jesus hasn't reached Samaria. He's getting close, which means he might come across some Samaritans in this. And he does come across a Samaritan who's even in a really bad place. Now look at verse 12. Right? So you, you, got the, you got the trajectory. On his way to Jerusalem, he's getting close to Samaria. He, and then notice verse 12. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So now you got to realize, Jesus, in this move, he, you know, I re I'm going to use hip vernacular, but it's going to really sound bad because I'm not hip. Right? He's got a posse. Right? That sounds lame coming from me, doesn't it? Okay? He's got this posse. He's got himself. He's got 12 disciples. 
And he's probably got 50 or 100 people following him. He's got the, what, the, what was simply in the Bible called the multitudes. He's making his way, and everywhere he goes, he's attracting people. So now we don't know what village he's entering, but he enters into a village. And as he enters into a village, picture in your mind Jesus with his 12 around and maybe 50 or 100 people trying to talk to him, asking him questions, just this total, you know, little, I actually picture little kid soccer. You ever see little kids playing soccer? I mean, it's just like a little beehive of things just around that ball, right? Jesus is the ball, and a bunch of kids just run around that ball, okay? And that's what it is, just this little beehive comes in. But maybe 100 people or so. And as he enters the village, there's 10 lepers, and they break protocol. Why? Well, first, let's just, for a moment, just in order to let the, the impact of the story hit you. What is leprosy? Leprosy is a, a disease, a bacterial infection that hits your skin. Uh, eventually, you lose all the feeling in your skin. It, it, it eats away at your digits, your fingers and your toes, so eventually they just become little nubs on each end. Impacts your eyesight, so you can't see. Impacts your breathing. Starts to really compress your breathing, so it's it's like asthma, you know, really bad asthma. It's very painful. Eventually, all the cartilage begins to wear down, and your, your nose will begin to go away, and your ear will, everywhere there's cartilage, it goes away. It's painful. Sores begin to develop because you don't even know you have an infection because you can't feel the pain. And, and, and all kinds of things to where your skin just gets horribly deformed your body gets horrible you can't walk you can't even really use crutches because you don't have fingers so and your, your toes are, are are starting to shrink and so you can't even walk because your toes are what help you keep you from falling on your face so it's just it's bad and 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 one of the laws in, in the book of leviticus was that if you were a leper anytime somebody was coming near you or you were going near someone you had to yell unclean unclean you just had to shout and I'm unclean, stay away from me. So in this case, what do we have? We have Jesus walking in, 10 of these guys, instead of yelling unclean, because the, in, in, in the Jewish custom, even in the Samaritan custom, if you had leprosy, you had to leave. You were not allowed in the community. You lived in your own place. You were cut off from your family. You were cut off from your friends. You were cut off from everything. You're way out in the middle. You know, you, you just were sent out in the middle of nowhere. And basically, unless some nice family member was going to bring you food, you were just left out there to die. And anytime someone was to come close, you couldn't have contact with them. You'd have to yell unclean. In this case, they break protocol, and they say, Master Jesus, have mercy on us. They know something about Jesus. They know that he possesses creative power. He can absolutely create a new body in them. He can absolutely reverse this thing. He can give them life. And so they take their chances, man. We're going to break the protocol. We're going to break the law and not yell unclean. We're going to yell, have mercy on us. Powerful moment. Now let's see what happens. Verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went... They were cleansed. So I'm picturing Jesus walking in. These guys are probably 200 yards away, maybe 300 yards. They couldn't get close. So they're just shouting. I'm just, you know, 
I don't think it's like a unison song kind of a moment. They're probably just shouting, Jesus, Master, Lord, have mercy. They're just screaming this thing. I can imagine the people in the village like, ah, oh, somebody tell these guys to be quiet. Jesus is coming. And he just looks up and he yells at them, go show yourself to the priests. That's all he says. Why? Well, the priest's job was they were kind of the health inspectors. They were the ones that if you were, if you were cleansed, they would allow you back in. They were the gatekeepers. So if you were sick, you had to go to the priest, and the priest would say, you're too sick, you've got to leave. And if you got healthy, you have to go back to the priest, and the priest says, you're welcome back in. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Jesus said that statement to them, what hadn't happened yet? Have you figured it out? They had not been healed. They weren't healed. He just said, go show yourself to the priest. That's it. Now, those of you who struggle with uh, authority... You might have said at that moment, why? I still have leprosy. Why? Tell me why. But they didn't. He didn't yell, be healed. He just said, go. Show yourself to the priest. He's sending them on their way. They obey. They obey. They make their way. They don't ask why. They're not yelling for why. They go. And what happens when they go on their way? And as they went, they were cleansed. You see that? Could you picture that moment? He says, go show yourself to the priests. You have leprosy, right? You can't walk. Let's just assume they're all in a bad state so they don't have toes and feet. And, I mean, they're not able to walk. They don't have fingers. It's hard to breathe. You know, you're just seeing shapes in front of you because your eyesight's blurry. You haven't smelled flowers in years. You've never, you haven't felt the wind on your face because you, all your nerve endings are dead. Right? You've got open sores, which, I mean, not to be gross, but you've got flies coming in and out of them and all kinds of bugs flying around you. This is horrible. And then you take that step and your toes grow. <laughs> Could you imagine that moment? All of a sudden, what's that smell? I mean, I'm picturing somebody, not in a kind of joking way, like actually sneezing for the first time. Wow. The hairs work in my nose. You could feel the wind at your face. What a moment. The reason I want to paint that picture, picture, I want to paint this because I want you to picture this, the, the incredible miracle that just took place. You went from not knowing what the earth felt like on your feet to knowing you went from not being able to walk three steps without going, <gasps> because you've had this pressure on your lungs, and suddenly you can breathe. Suddenly you can see. Suddenly you can smell. Suddenly you can, everything is back. The sores are gone. Your fingers have grown. Your toes have grown. What a moment. Now, the amazing thing about this moment is that he didn't do that first and then send him to the priest. He said, just go. Go. My word's enough. Go. They went. They obeyed. Just obeyed. That is grace and mercy. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't ask him if they were worthy of it. He didn't ask him, did you bring this, you know, was God punishing you? Did you deserve this? What kind of person are you? What kind of father are you? What kind of mother are you? Whoever's in this group. They didn't ask anything. He just, they asked for mercy, and he says, I'll give you mercy. That's what I love about Jesus. I believe this in my whole heart. If somebody cried out to God for mercy, I don't think 
God, right? If the depths of your heart, you said, have mercy on me, God. God would say, nah, I'm just not that merciful today. Feeling a little more judgmental. He is merciful. And they cry out for mercy and they get mercy. Now, two responses to the mercy of God. You can have humility and you can have hubris. Let's look at it. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. You understand now why Luke puts that point in there. You understand. The Samaritan's the one who's coming back and worshiping Jesus. This is the one. But notice, the ten, right? So you picture the moment. The ten turn away. Boom, they're healed. They're walking away from Jesus. Samaritan looks down, sees his feet, his hands. He's healed. He runs. The picture here is he's running to Jesus to fall at his feet, shouting praises to God. So what a miracle and the only thing he can do is run to Jesus. First time he's probably run in years. His lungs work. He can see Jesus. He can get to him now. He doesn't have to yell unclean. He's there. This man knows that a miracle of epic proportions has just taken place. But you know what? His issue or his reality was that he saw more than the healing. He saw the healer. He saw the one who healed him. And that one who healed him was more important than enjoying the healing. So he runs to him. The nine go the other direction. Now that is a response of what I want to just simply call hubris. What is hubris? Hubris is, is breast seen sometimes in, in, in young people, in teenagers. Sometimes teenagers try to push against their parents a little bit. You know, I'm going my own way. I'm doing it my own way. And, I, you know, I'm my own person. I can do it my way. Not realizing that they are so dependent on their parents for everything. And they just don't know it. They can't see it. Right? They, they just can't see it. It's, it's like this. There was a, a, um, a kind of a joke told about to, to explain what hubris is. And it's a joke about an atheist challenging God and saying to God, you know what, I don't believe in you because I just think you're just some spirit being because I can do anything you can do. And God says, really, can you do this? And he takes some dirt, forms the dirt into a, a human body shape, breathes life into the dirt, and the dirt comes alive to a man. And the atheist says, I can do that. So he begins to take his dirt and he forms the dirt, starts shaping it into the form of a man, and God grabs his hand and says, get your own dirt. That's hubris. You think, it'll click later, so you catch it. You think, you think you have more than what you have. You are taking what you have, and rather than being thankful for it, Rather than looking at the past and looking at, at who provided it, you just take it and you run. You take it and you run. Right? It's, it's the story of the prodigal son. I'm just going to take what my dad, what's rightfully mine, and I'm going to run and go my own way with it. Hubris. Hubris, in this case, is when you take the blessing of God and all the blessings he's given to you, 
whatever it is you're thankful for today, and you just live for your own agenda. That's hubris. I'm going my own way. God, you've blessed me. I'm off. Getting back to my family. I haven't seen my wife in years. I've got to get the approval from the priest, and I can go back home, get back to the farm, get back to my life. Thanks, Jesus. Got to go. Hubris. So the kid, I want my own way. Can I borrow the car? I want it my own way. Thanks for breakfast. You know, I'm just doing, I, right? So, Jesus, how does he respond? Samaritan's down at his feet. He's humbling himself before Jesus. Jesus says, verse 17, we're not ten cleansed. <clears throat> Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Actually, probably a better translation is your faith has saved you. We have a story of ten men being healed and one man being saved. Ten men who have received the blessing of God, one man who's received the life of God. Now, Jesus wants to know, where are the other nine? Where did they go? Now think about this. If Hollywood were writing this story, what would they do at this moment? What would they do with Jesus? Why don't you think about this? Because I want to think about how, what men do when they're faced with this moment versus what Jesus does. Well, what does Hollywood do at this moment? Hollywood would have this. Jesus heals these guys. The one runs back. The nine are going their own way. And then Jesus, if this were Hollywood, would say, how dare you take advantage of my grace and mercy? I'm going to inflict pain on you that's going to make Job look like he had allergies. Right? Shoot him down. Right? Wouldn't that what Hollywood would do? Those guys would be like, oh! Right? They'd be writhing in pain. He'd say, my mercy's not to be taken advantage of. Right? Isn't that what Hollywood would do? Justice would be served. We're going to take that away. You don't honor me. I'm taking it away from you. I'm coming after you. What did Jesus do? He just asked a question. Where are the nine? Then he says to the one, you're seeing beyond the healing to the healer. And you, Samaritan, are saved. And you know what happens to the other nine? They get to live the rest of their days leprosy free. We don't know what's going to happen to their souls. But Jesus isn't going to take the mercy and blessing away. Why? He's a merciful God. He healed those guys. But they've missed something significantly more important than the removal of leprosy. They missed Jesus. This summer, I went camping with Andrew. And uh, we sat down, and we were kind of planning the camping trip. And I was thinking about all the safety stuff we needed. Just like, okay, make sure there's plenty of water and a first aid kit. And what are all the potential things that could happen? And, and if there's a storm, do we, you know, da, 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 just all the safety stuff, thinking we take them out camping. So we gather up our camping box, and we have all this stuff. And, and the very first night... We were going to have uh, you know, hot dogs over the op- open fire, roast some hot dogs. And so we get out the hot dogs, get the fire going, roast the hot dogs. I pull out the buns, put the hot dog in the bun, and then Dad go, or Andrew goes, Dad, do you have any ketchup or anything like that? I'm like, no, I actually didn't think about any of that. <laughs> Got a hot dog and bun, you know. And that's it. <laughs> and he's like, nothing else? Like, 
not even carrots or no no just i thought through safety equipment hot dogs and buns <laughs> you know it's like i forgot everything else and then i said you know andrew that's the difference between when i plan something and when mommy plans something because <laughs> when mommy plans something you get like all this great stuff watermelon and you know ketchup and and healthy stuff and unhealthy stuff there'd be all kinds of treats and fun things and yeah hot dogs and buns and then i started thinking did i even bring breakfast you know like i didn't think this through i'm ready for a tornado but i'm not ready to live you know it's like i missed kind of the obvious so then that night i'm sitting around the fire and i'm chuckling to myself thinking wow Heather would just be laughing at me so much right now, knowing that I brought nothing to eat. And, uh, but then I started thinking about her, and I started thinking about how much I appreciate her and how important she is to me. And, and it isn't just because she remembers things like ketchup and watermelon and things like that. I started thinking about her, the person behind what she brings to our family the person behind her kindness and her tenderness, the, the person that, that she is and the blessing she is as a person. And then I was like starting to miss her. I wish she was here. And I was thinking, these guys that got healed, they took the ketchup and they took the watermelon and they took the s'more stuff and they took all the fun stuff and they just ran with it and they couldn't see the one who provided it. They couldn't see Jesus. I think the point of this story is to remind us Jesus is incredibly powerful. He's incredibly merciful. If you obey him, incredible things happen. When he says, go show yourself to the priest, you show yourself to the priest, and boom, things happen. But the question is this, what do we do with the blessing we've received? And if we take what we've received and we make it about us, it's hubris, and we miss the one. We miss the one who provided it for us. We miss it. So there's a challenge here. The challenge is this. What role does Jesus play in your life? It's the question I began with. What role does he play? If we take his blessings, and then we live our agenda and our life, we're missing the one. We miss the one who provides it all. If we take what we've been given and it brings us back to praise and worship and adoration and love for Christ, then we're moving in the direction of life. I believe one of the reasons why the church at times is impotent is because it wants the blessing for its own agenda. It only sees the blessing, not the one behind the blessing. It doesn't love that one more than anything else in the world. Other loves have gotten in the way. But I told you that there's the challenge, but there's a blessing in this passage, and here's the blessing I want you to, to know. Jesus did not curse those other nine for running away. He didn't shoot them down. He is kind. And so if you are challenged by this passage today, and you say, wow, I haven't taken to heart Jesus. All I think about is what I need, and I'm just living for what I want and what I need, and if I can only have, and if then, if then, if all that stuff runs through my brain all the time, and I'm just running my contingencies and running my plans and working on my master life strategy, and Jesus isn't my everything, 
you can bring that to him now and you can be set free from that roller coaster because there's no peace in that world. If there was peace, you'd sleep at night thinking about that kind of stuff. But if you start thinking about it before you get out of bed, you don't sleep at night. You worry. But when you realize, man, the one who blesses you is the one who loves you and gives you life. He created you for his purposes and in that is hope. Then you will live a peaceful life. So I want to give you a moment. Dell's going to come and she's just going to play something on the piano here. And, and I want to just give you a moment to bring this challenge to the mercy of Jesus. Just take a moment, maybe think through the ways that you have been blessed this week, all the things that God has done for you, and offer it as praise back to God. And then go through the process of saying, Jesus, I want to see more of you as my, the, the man behind the healing and less of the healing. I want to see the blesser, not just the blessing. I want to live for you and your glory, not just for me and, and my glory. Just take a moment and pray that and know this, that, that that kind of prayer is a prayer Jesus loves to answer and in that kind of prayer there is more life and hope than you could ever imagine. So just take a minute or so and just, just bring your heart before the Lord. Father, I just come before you on behalf of my brothers and sisters, knowing that all of us just take what we have been given and we run. Our agenda, our desires is what controls us. And Lord, we pay the penalty for that in this earthly world with worry and, and just useless anxiety. Lord, may we look beyond just the blessings you give to us and may we begin to see you. May our love for Christ grow every day that we might just see him and live for him and worship him. God, may we honestly, from the depths of our hearts, set aside the, the desires of just taking from you and beginning to, to live for you. So, Lord, may we translate these blessings to praise and may we be able to, in the depths of who we are, begin to live for you and your kingdom. May your purposes be carried out in us so that we might find that meaning as we walk in the way in which you've created us. Thank you, God, for your mercy that you tenderly shepherd us and guide us to understand these truths. And it's in Christ's merciful name I pray. Amen.